Did, did any of you hear uh, earlier this year about the Nazi criminal trial that took place? Does that ring a bell for anyone? For those of you that didn't, you're probably a little confused. In September, a 98-year-old former concentration camp guard was indicted by the German authorities for assisting in the murder of some 3,300 Jews between the years of 1943 and 1945. He was tried in juvenile court because he wasn't even 18 at the time when he assisted in this. And this adds to the two Nazi convictions that occurred last year, if you pay attention to the news. As according to the recent report that I read, Germany is racing against time to bring the last surviving perpetrators of Nazi war crime now well into old age to justice. And to the pragmatist sitting here this morning or in the world, you might ask, what a massive waste of time and money. Why waste so much time, why waste so much money pursuing an 80-year-old crime? Particularly when those that are accused are likely to pass away from old age prior to being sentenced. And I expect many of us would probably respond to something like this. If you had any idea how heinous the crime was, you wouldn't question the need for justice, no matter how long that justice was delayed. What is an undeniable fact about human nature is that we have a keen sense of justice. We have an absolute desire to see that evil is punished and justice is achieved. After all, part of our Pledge of Allegiance is what? Liberty and justice for all. But is it just an ideal? No, it's something that we long for in our human condition. And rightly so, but it's also one of the reasons that reading through texts like this morning's text in Joshua can be so difficult. We find our instincts may betray us. As many of us read this story, and if you've read it in advance, you know what I'm talking about, and we're tempted to be offended by God's actions against the Canaanites, are we not? We read a text like this and we go, God, how could you do that? Because texts like this force us to wrestle with whether or not we truly believe that God is justified in judging human evil. It puts to the forefront for us whether or not we genuinely believe that God is the judge of all of the earth and all of humanity. And it presses that question home and forces us to answer what we actually believe. And it's with that difficult subject in mind that I want to ask you to join me in praying as we'll need God's help walking through this text this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for what we've already sung about this morning, for the joy it is to know you, for the honor it is to come before you to sing praises to you, for the treasure it is to know that you go before us. We don't have to do this on our own. And Father, we want to acknowledge that even as we study your word together this morning. It isn't an intellectual exercise we don't understand your word rightly because of our intelligence or because of our effort even alone, but we need your Spirit's help. And so we ask that you would guide and direct, that you would be present in this moment, that you would speak through me, Lord, that you would soften the hearts and minds of those that are sitting here today. Lord, help everything we say in this morning's message to exalt Christ, to proclaim the gospel, 
and to encourage your saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you may recall, if you've been with us through the Joshua series so far, and if you've been reading ahead, that at this point, this week, we come to what's known as a key juncture in the book of Joshua. So we need to take a moment and we need to backtrack and make sure that we're all up to speed on exactly where we are in the book. You'll recall when we started out the Joshua series, we said there's four main sections to the book of Joshua. Joshua starts off in chapters 1 through 5 by talking about the crossing. And we have this Hebrew term, abar. And it indicates passing over or going into the land that set up the stage for the rest of the book. Then in this next section that we've been in the last few weeks, chapters 6 through 12, it details the taking of the land, the conquest, the battle portion of the land. That's the section that we're going to wrap up here in our time together this morning. Before, in the coming weeks, diving into how the land is divided up or allotted, we're going to spend, brace for impact here, next week, one week on chapters 13 through 21 as we're going to move fairly quickly through the allotment of the land. But it is significant, so don't just blur over it in your reading as well. Before finally wrapping up as we come into December at the end of the year by focusing on this serving, worshiping God as God calls the people to obey him and worship him in the land. This is the structure of the book. And so we find ourselves in somewhat the midway point as we wrap up chapters 10 and 11 here this morning. And today we're wrapping up the formal battle portion of the book as the conquest of the land, this taking of the land comes to an end. And what's fascinating about this section is to do this, after detailing in some detail some of the key battles, the author now quickly summarizes the rest of the conquest. The remaining portions of the conquest of the land, the opposition in the south, gets wrapped up in verses 29 through 43 here, and then the opposition in the north gets wrapped up in verses 1 through 15. And you can see some of what takes place. I realize that's pretty small, but you don't need to read all the titles. What we're looking at here is the red part is as they enter into the land, the yellow is the conquest of the southern part, and the blue is the conquest of the northern part. And essentially, we're going to cover all of the rest of that in our time together here this morning in chapters 10 and 11. But Joshua, writing this book, summarizes the rest of this conquest very, very quickly, and I think he does so for a key reason. He is seeking to stress the reality as God, of God as judge of the universe. He's trying to help us understand that God must judge human evil. As the judge of the universe, as the divine authority of everything there is, God must judge human evil. We're going to see that here in the first part, or the last part of chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11. He does so through these two periscopes, the northern conquest and the southern conquest. And we're going to look at each of those here real briefly. He starts with the southern conquest in verses 29 through 43. And in this section, Israel conquers six additional kings. They destroy five more cities. And as I read through this section, I'm going to read through the whole section to give you a feel for the weight of it. What I want you to pay attention to is what words, what phrases are repeated and stressed. As I read it, listen and see what you see come up again and again. I'm going to read section 29 through 39 about the destruction of these cities. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword. And every person in it, he left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel went with, or with him, passed on from Libna to Lachish, and laid siege to it and fought against it. 
And the Lord God gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it, as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, the king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it, and they fought against it. And they captured it on that day, and they struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up to Eglon, or from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it, and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and its king, and its towns, and every person in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction, every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir, and fought against it. And he captured it with its kings and its, all its towns, and they struck it with the edge of the sword and devoted it to destruction, every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king. So he did to Debir and to its king. Now, what did you note was repeated there? What were the phrases, what were the details that came up again and again and again? And do you feel the weight of that reality? At least four things in this repeated telling of the conquest of the South are noted. First, you cannot avoid God's involvement. In both verse 30 and verse 32, it's very clear that God is the one doing the fighting here, right? And the Lord gave, and the Lord gave. This isn't surprising to us if we've been with us through the rest of the book of Joshua, because God has been fighting this battle for the Israelites through the entire book of Joshua. But God's role is stressed in the southern campaign it also notes Israel's obedience as they struck with the edge of the sword and struck with the edge of the sword. And did you note that comes up six times in this section? He struck it with the edge of the sword. He struck it with the edge of the sword. Israel is being obedient to what God is calling them to do. Thirdly, you want to note Canaan's destruction here. Every person, he left none remaining. Did you see that in verse 30? And he struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it he left none remaining. Verse 32, and he struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it. Verse 33, and he left none remaining. Verse 35, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day. Verse 37, he left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon. He devoted it to destruction, every person in it. Verse 39, and they struck it with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. Canaan's absolute destruction is unavoidable in this text. And what's also unavoidable is the fact that Joshua is simply being faithful to God's command. Did you pick up on that in the verses? According to what God had called them to do, as he had done to Jericho, as he had done to Libna, as he had done to Lachish, as he had done again and again and again. We know God's involvement, we know Israel's obedience and faithfulness, and we know the absolute nature of Canaan's destruction here. Starting to feel a little uncomfortable yet? But before drawing our conclusions, we should note that in verse 40 through 42, Joshua reinforces all four of these themes. Read verses 40 through 42 with me. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time, because the Lord 
God of Israel fought for Israel. Again, God's role is stressed. The fact that God commanded this conquest is stressed. The fact that the Canaanites are completely destroyed is stressed. And the fact that this was God's victory ultimately is very, very clear from these verses. And with that, he brings the southern campaign to a close. Look at verse 43. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. They go back to their base of operations. I know some of you are dying for me to clear this up, but we can't do that yet. Because he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just stop with the southern campaign. Joshua also picks up these same things again, but does so in the form of a detailed story of the northern campaign. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Starting in the northern campaign, we see another five-king coalition come up against the Israelites. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Maidan, and to the king of Shimron, to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were with the northern hill country, and in the Erebus, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowlands, and Naphoth, Dor, to the west, to the Canaanites, to the east and west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. You feel the heightened tension, right? The entire remaining force of Canaan is now arrayed against Israel here. As they came into the land, you'll recall, Joshua takes leadership and they move into the land and the city of Jericho seemed like this insurmountable opposition that they had to face and God wipes Jericho out. Then they have the whole debacle with Gibeon and this five-king coalition forms against them from the south and Israel is surprised at their ease of victory as God hurls hailstones and delays the day so that they can finish the conquest. And now Canaan hurls everything it has left at Israel. Everybody that's left in the land says, this is the moment we're going to take out Israel and defeat their God once and for all. But if you're expecting an epic battle, you're going to be sorely disappointed. In verses 6 through 9, we get this staggeringly easy victory. Look at this. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give them all, or give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of the Israel, or of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon, and Misraphoth, Miriam, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. The climax of the book. The conquest has continued to get more and more dire until you think for sure they're going to be overwhelmed and we get these four easy verses. God promises victory. God gives victory. Joshua and Israel obey. It's as if you could summarize this entire section with vini, vidi, vici. If you're familiar, right, with these famous words of Julius Caesar, I came, I saw, I conquered. And Joshua goes, we came, we saw, God conquered. You expect this incredible battle, you know, you expect this 15, 20 minutes of fighting like in one of the Lord of the Rings movies, right? This intense action sequence as God's people are pitted against the people of Canaan. What's going to happen? God just ends it. The victory is almost instantaneous. 
And instead, a great deal of time is actually dedicated to Joshua's mopping up of the Canaanite cities. We see this in verses 10 through 15. Look at this. And Joshua turned back at that time to capture Hazor and struck its king with a sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone that Joshua burned. And all the spoils of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. They destroy Hazor, and they burn it. The remaining cities and their kings are looted and captured. And then this final verse drives the point home. God told Moses to do it. Moses told Joshua to do it. And Joshua did exactly what he was told to do. We see these same four themes stressed throughout this story. God initiates this judgment. He is the one calling for the judgment of the Canaanites. Then God enables it. He gives them into the hand of the Israelites, not by their strength, not by their might, just like we were reading from Psalms earlier. Israel simply obeys, and as a result, Canaan is thoroughly destroyed. So what are we to do with this text? How do we interpret this text in the Bible? This text that many have used as their justification for walking away from their faith or for rejecting the God of the Bible. The fact is, as modern day readers, we come to the end of this text more concerned about the character of God in the text than inspired by God's faithfulness to his people. What are we to do? Because we must have an answer particularly if you're going to speak with any unbelievers in your lives. I mean, it's all well and good if we just huddle in our own holy groups of believers and only talk to other believers. We don't have to answer this question. But if you come face to face with an unbeliever and they say, what do you do about Joshua 10 and 11? What would your answer be? Some of the objections that people seem to put against this text might be labeled as the skeptic unbeliever and the sympathetic believer. The skeptic unbeliever looks at a text like this and seeks to accuse God. To accuse God's character of being unfaithful, of being unjust, of being unrighteous. Much like the popular atheist Richard Dawkins, who reads this text and he labels the conquest of the promised land as a genocidal ethnic cleansing. He says this story in Joshua that we're reading is full of bloody massacres carried out with xenophobic relish. Is that the story being told here in Joshua 10 and 11? And maybe that's someone that's sitting here this morning. Maybe you find yourself struggling with this reality saying, God, did you just wipe out a whole people? Did these people just happen to be born in the wrong tribe or of the wrong ethnicity and as a result you just wiped them out to make room for your people? Is this the sort of holy war that so frightens us as we read the news when we see it? Hold on to that for a moment. We're going to address it. Because others here sitting this morning are more what I would call the sympathetic believer. 
they place their faith in Christ, they read the Word of God, but they find themselves struggling still. And maybe your temptation is to excuse God. To refer to God kind of like that odd uncle at Thanksgiving. You know what I mean. You bring your fiancé, you bring your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and you warn them. You say, look, Uncle Ed is just a little different. Right? He may say some things, he may do some things, but he doesn't really mean it. You just bless his heart. He's Uncle Ed. If you're not laughing right now, you're Uncle Ed. Just, <laughs> just for the record. Okay? Or aunt, it can be an aunt too. And some of us as believers have a tendency to do that with God in this text, do we not? When faced with the reality of this tension, we say, well, God didn't really mean it. You know, God was just kind of having a bad day. Or maybe worse still, that was just the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is totally different. And we bifurcate the Trinity in a dangerous theological paradigm. No matter who you are, you have to provide an answer to this question. What did God do? Why did he do it? How could God do this? We try any number of possible answers. Maybe you find yourself feeling, maybe I can eliminate God's role from this. Maybe God didn't really command it. This is what some liberal theologians will do. They will say, God wasn't really the one commanding this. This was just Israel going rogue, and they justified it later on. But to do that, you essentially have to ignore the text, don't you? As we read again and again and again, Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. You can't go that direction. Some will also argue that the death sentence was not total. And he says they wiped everyone out, but maybe others were saved, similar to Rahab at the beginning of the book, or similar to the Gibeonites who came seeking salvation. But that too seems highly unlikely in light of what we're going to read in the next section where it says there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites. The inhabitants of Gibeon, they took them all in battle. So it seems as if God's offer of repentance was out there, just like with Rahab, but none of the Canaanites took him up on it. Both of these answers are clearly insufficient. They clearly don't answer the heart of the problem. This is precisely the reason I love studying and reading Scripture. Because I believe that if you just keep reading in the story, the Bible will answer the question we find ourselves so wrestling with in verses 16 through 23. Here, they provide the conclusion to the conquest in verses 16 through 23. And here we learn something critical about God. God is justified in punishing evil. He's the only one that is. Look at verse 16. So Joshua took all the land, the hill country and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowlands of the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir, as far as Balagad, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. And then these verses, verse 19 and 20. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts as they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And you go, hold on a second, Brad. Doesn't that make it worse? 
Don't we see God being arbitrarily difficult, hardening the hearts of the Canaanites? Hold on just a moment. What did we actually read there? There's two keys in understanding this text. The first is in verse 19 where we see stubborn human rebellion. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites. It's fascinating to consider the fact that no one was bottlenecking the Canaanites into this land. Israel did not surround Canaan and keep people there so that they could massacre them, and yet none of the Canaanites retreat. None of the Canaanites choose to leave. Every single one of them decides to rebel against God, thinking that they can be the one to conquer God's people. They know Israel's goals. They know Israel's God. That becomes very clear throughout the earlier part of the book, where the Gibeonites knew the law. Rahab knew that she could repent. And yet none of the other Canaanites choose to do so. They knew what was going to happen. They knew what God was doing. And they still chose to shake their fist at God. Tell me that isn't your heart. I know it's mine. Even when I know my sin is rebellion against God, I still have a tendency to cherish it and hold on to it and say, God, I know better than you do. The other thing that tends to get whitewashed in this section of Scripture is people forget at just how significant the sin of the Canaanites was. The rest of, or earlier in the Pentateuch, if you've been reading along, you've probably run into some of these sections. We find the main offenses that the Canaanites are accused of. In both Deuteronomy chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 18, we get lists of what the Canaanites were guilty of. I'm not going to go into detail on this, but let me just give you an idea. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, God tells the Israelites that the reason the Canaanites are getting jettisoned from the land is because they're engaging in child sacrifice. They're offering up their children to their gods to get the gods' special blessing. Literally burning them. Deuteronomy 18 goes on to include sorcery, necromancy, and divination in the list of sins against the Canaanites. Then there's Leviticus 18. In Leviticus 18, it's a long list of sins that God is calling his people not to do. And at the end of that section, he says, the reason you're not to do this is because these are the things that the Canaanites did that corrupted and made the land unclean. The list he gives them in Leviticus 18 includes incest, bestiality, homosexuality, adultery, and again, child sacrifice is repeated. This was not an innocent people. This was not an innocent culture. This was not people just trying to get along. This was a culture that was infused in direct rebellion against God and was destroying people in the process. And it's very clear that their sin, not their ethnicity, is the issue. They are not wiped out because they happen to be born to the wrong parents. They're wiped out because of the grievous nature of their sin and just to make the matter very clear, in Deuteronomy 9, verse 4, God says to his own people, and oh, by the way, it's not because you guys are so great that I'm moving you into the land to take them out. I'm using you to judge this other people, and if you rebel against me, you're going to get the same treatment they do. And we learn later in the Bible that they do. And God expels them from the land as well. I love the way W.L. Alexander puts this. 
He says, when a nation has given way to such nameless and shameless wickedness, that its land groans beneath the burden of its crimes, it is a mercy to the world when the evil is stamped out. No nation has any absolute right to itself or its land. It holds its existence subject to God's will and to that will alone. And if it is good for the world that it should give place to others, he will cause it to pass away. A stern warning for us today, is it not? No nameless or no nation can get away with this sort of wickedness without God noticing. Therefore, he goes on to explain that God is justified in his divine destruction of this nation in verse 20. And that's where we read, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And I think the key there is in the term mercy. I want to note here in this verse that we should take note of both God's patience and God's mercy. You're like, Brad, how do you see that in this verse? Well, you see that if you've read the Pentateuch, if you've read the first five books. In Genesis 15, verse 16, as God is promising to Abraham to give him the land to expel these people, he says, but I have to wait. I'm going to have you guys go down to Egypt first, and after a few generations, then I'm going to bring you up to wipe out the Amorites. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This nation was engaged in these sort of activities, and yet God waits 400 years to bring judgment. If you were a loved one of one of those killed in the Holocaust, don't you think that 80 years would be an excruciating period of time to wait for justice? And yet God, in his patience, waits 400 years to bring judgment on these people. 400 years! We say, God, how dare you? as if that's not merciful enough. The other thing that's worth noting here is he says that God did this to bring judgment on them rather than mercy. God would be perfectly justified in judging every human who ever lived for just one sin. But none of us would want to live in a world where there was no justice. Do we not look around the state of our world today and long for justice? You see, God, you need to do something. Do you see the wickedness? Do you see the evil? Do you see the people being destroyed and hurt and wounded? We long to live in a world where God is just and God punishes evil. But the fact of the matter is, no one truly deserves God's mercy. No one is justified in asking for God's mercy and if God wasn't just, mercy wouldn't be merciful. So here we see that God is absolutely justified in his judgment. Why? Because of the depravity of these people's sins and because of his holiness. But even then, he waits 400 years to let them repent. If that's not grace, I don't know what is. If that's not mercy, I don't know what is. How many of us would be that merciful, would be that gracious in waiting for justice? But in additionally, I think we also want to note here real quickly that in addition to God's justice and judgment of evil, 
In verses 21 through 23, Joshua also indicates that God uses this to show his faithfulness in the face of evil. Look at verse 21. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, and from Anab, and from the hill country of Judah. And from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, and Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. He has this punctuation on the end, which we find probably a little strange unless we consider who the Anakim were. Remember that the Anakim were this race of giants whom the Israelites had fled from the first time they came into the land. Caleb and Joshua and the other ten spies had come back to Moses, and Caleb and Joshua had said we could take them, but the other ten said, they're giants, we don't stand a chance. Referring to the Anakim, and Joshua punctuates their victory of the promised land by saying, and oh, by the way, they defeated the Anakim. And they finished taking the whole land, and God uses his judgment here to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to move the Israelites into the promised land, to give them the place where they would exemplify his holiness where they were supposed to. So here's the deal. Here is the crux of the issue. We struggle with texts like this because we struggle to recognize that God is justified in judging human evil. Chiefly because we have a stake in the game. Chiefly because we see ourselves at the center of the universe. We want justice on those who harm us. We want justice on those who harm those we love, but we want mercy for ourselves. Don't we? It's not like we dislike justice. We just want to be the judge. And we sit back and we judge God for who he brings justice on and who he shows mercy to. And we say, if I was in charge, I would do a better job. Well, I know for a fact that if I was in charge, I would not do a better job. Because the crux of the problem is our sin makes us incapable of doing the job. Our own sin blinds us to the fact of justice. If we were the ones in charge of justice, what it would mean is might makes right. If I like you, then there's mercy. And if I don't like you, then there's justice. But that's not the way God operates, thank goodness. Instead, God operates on a paradigm that's grander and bigger than we can ever see. He operates on true justice. He operates on true righteousness. And he has a greater vision than simply what takes place here on earth. I love the way, and this we struggle to understand, but I love the way Mark Dever puts this. He says, human life is not the ultimate value in the Bible. God is. Hear me on that. Human life is not the ultimate value in the Bible. God is. And thank goodness that is true. Because otherwise we would be in charge. Otherwise we would get to set the rules. Otherwise our definition of justice would prevail. But instead, because God is the ultimate purpose of the universe, God can dish out justice and mercy appropriately in this world. And though it's a hard pill for us to swallow, we must come to believe that God is justified in judging human evil. He is. Because he's God. And we're not. 
Now, the question we have to ask ourselves as we begin to wrap up here is, how does this impact the way we read the text? If we embrace the idea that God is the appropriate judge, he is perfectly just, what is the application for us in our own lives? Because you're probably saying, well, that's all well and good that we've waxed eloquent and philosophical in our time together this morning, Brad, but what does that have to do with the way I've lived my life? Let me just encourage you to three brief things here. First, reading texts like this in the Bible should make us weep. They should make us weep. First, for our sin and the sin of others, but for the fact that humanity stands in stark rebellion against God, willfully choosing to walk toward an eternity away from Him rather than embrace the gift of salvation through Christ. That should break our hearts. It should break our hearts for our own sin and it should break our hearts for our loved ones and friends and neighbors and co-workers and everyone who is in direct rebellion against God walking away from him. We should read this text and weep at the depravity of human sin. But a text like this should also make us rejoice. It should also make us celebrate. First and foremost, because God is just. And he doesn't overlook evil. That there is no evil, there is no offense, there is no rebellion against God that takes place in this world that God doesn't notice and will not ultimately judge. No one has ever hurt you, no one has ever lied to you, no one has ever done anything against you that God did not see and he won't judge. A text like this should make us rejoice because none of us wants to live in a world without justice. None of us wants to live in a world where God is indifferent to human suffering, pain, and wickedness. Where God simply sits on his throne as a deist of the universe and says, well, that whole child trafficking thing isn't such a big deal. That whole abuse thing isn't such a big deal. The murder of people isn't such a big deal. We need texts like this to remind us that God is just. He doesn't miss anything. And where those two things come together is a text like this should make us repent. Should make us fall on our knees praising Christ for our salvation. For the fact that as believers having placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we're not going to get what we deserve. Not because God isn't just, but because God chose to send his own son and then poured out his wrath on him, the wrath that we deserved. should make us repent. It should make us fall at Christ's feet, thankful for what he's done for us. Because we deserve to be in the cities right alongside these Canaanites. This is the reason that when these two things come together, one of my favorite texts in the New Testament is Romans chapter 3. Turn to the right in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. This is where I think the preeminent reality of these two things comes together in a way that just boggles my mind. The fact that we should weep over sin and we should rejoice that God is just, how does that result in salvation for his people? Romans 3 says this. Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness, and that word can be translated justice, of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or payment by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the proper time and then this phrase, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See how these twin realities come together in or Paul's theology in Romans 3? It says none of us would want to live in a world where God wasn't just, where evil wasn't punished. But every single one of us needs mercy if we're ever going to have a relationship with God. And the only place that those two things can be accomplished is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that God is perfectly just. He dishes out judgment on every sin and every offense that has ever taken place, but he does so on his son rather than us. He can be both just, not ignoring sin, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the incredible reality of the gospel. This is what every person that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ understands implicitly. That if Christ hadn't absorbed my punishment, I would. And I think all of these three things also come into stark relief when we celebrate the gospel in communion. So I want us to take a moment here at the end of the service and I want us to celebrate the Lord's Supper here together. Because in the Lord's Supper, we pause to acknowledge the realities of Joshua 10 and 11. We pause to say, we're weeping over our own sin. Our sin is a rebellion against God. It's a desire to walk our own way. And if God was just, he would bring that justice down on each and every one of us. But in communion, we also rejoice. Because we say, God did spend his whole wrath on one person at one moment. And Christ absorbed that for us, and so we celebrate and we rejoice as we take the elements together. It also reminds us to repent. It reminds us that when we come to God to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we should do so in a worthy manner. We should do so acknowledging our sin, not thinking we can do it on our own strength, but recognizing that we need Christ to do what only he can do. Let me, I want to take a moment, I just want to pray to prepare our hearts and prepare our minds to celebrate the Lord's Supper here together, and then I'll have the ushers come down, and you can raise your hand if you didn't receive any of the elements. So just take a moment, and let's pray for our time together. Father, we confess that we are no different than the Canaanites. The depravity of our own hearts causes us to want to shake our fists in rebellion against you. We want to walk away from the truth of the gospel. We want to walk our own way and do our own thing and live our lives our own way. But we recognize that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the fact that you didn't just leave us in that condition sent your son into the world to die, to absorb the penalty for our sin. Even though he had lived a perfect life that deserved nothing of that. He died on our behalf. He was raised again on the third day, vindicating his life. And he was raised again to your right hand. 
And so, Father, we do weep over our sin. We do recognize that we all resonate with that. But we also rejoice in the fact that you are good, that you are just, and that you are the justifier of the one who places their faith in Jesus Christ. So we come to the table here this morning, not because of our own justification, not because we deserve to be here, but simply as a celebration of your act of grace in our lives. We thank you for Jesus and for the work he did for us. In his name we pray. Amen.